I actually found that moment of getting into the hammock, having my routine, turning off the light. If you think about the Jungle Book or any any jungle program you've ever heard, where you hear the, you know, the the monkeys, the the the, the birds, the the roaring of something that you don't know what it is, the crickets. It's just like as soon as the lights go down, the sound goes up, and it was an audio experience. That um, you know, it it was putting me to sleep, and I actually found it very, uh, very relaxing. Now, you're in it, you're in it, you're with a group of, of other people around you. There is a local um, proving guy on in the camp as well, because there are issues with snakes. And um, there was a bush master snake that uh, came into the camp last year, a very dangerous snake. Welcome to No Finish Line, a podcast with John O'Regan, sponsored by Great Outdoors Dublin. Hello and welcome back to another episode of No Finish Line podcast. And in this episode, I'm joined by a previous guest, John Belton. We're going to talk about the Jungle Ultra. He's recently returned from Manu National Park, located deep in the Amazon rainforest. It's an unspoiled expanse of jungle and cloud forest, stretches from the Andes Mountains to the Madre de Dios River. It's known as the wettest, hottest and most beautiful jungle in the world. And it is said that there is no jungle in the world that can actually compare with that of Peru, with its virgin rainforests, diverse wildlife and numerous tribes still living in the region. Some of those are living in small villages and others are living in nomadic hunter-gatherer life. This is the setting for the Jungle Ultra. It's a race from, as I mentioned, from the Andes Mountains and it finishes at the Amazon River. Covers a distance of 230 kilometres over five stages and that itself consists of jungle trails, mountain roads, village tracks, leading the way down from a certain elevation of 2,740 metres in the cloud forest to the Amazon jungle in the valley below. Although competitors head down towards the river over the five days, they also accumulate 5,000 metres of climbing over the undulating terrain. For this race, and similar to other stage races, competitors must remain self-sufficient, carrying their own food and supplies. And in this race, they also have to carry a hammock. Uh, John had my one. As well as that, they have a sleeping bag, food and their supplies for the entire race, getting to replenish their minimum requirement of two and a half litres of water along the way at checkpoints and at the end of the day at the base camp. In the jungle, humidity levels can reach close to 100%, which makes sweating useless in maintaining your core body temperature. It leaves the athletes saturated for extended periods of the race and also when they finally reach camp at the end of the day. So very hard to get comfortable. In the past eight years, there have been 300 competitors with only 50 finishers. And this year, only six managed to complete the distance and John Belton was one of those. John, welcome back to the podcast. John, Thank you for having me again. Now, before we start talking about the race, which is what you want to talk about, I want to know, what's it like being back? Um, it has been it has been amazing. It, the race itself was fantastic, which we'll talk about. Um, and the intro you gave there was so descriptive and lovely that it's, um, I guess, in a way, encapsulating how I feel now looking back at the jungle. I feel like it was a, it was five days, well, like truthfully gone for 11 days of travel, five days of an immersive um, life experience that 
I didn't anticipate would would leave me feeling the way it, it has. Um, it was very uh, very challenging physically and mentally, um, mentally for different reasons for me than others. But being back in reality, and, and I'm back in, in beautiful a beautiful part of Portugal here, and being back in reality has been has been has been amazing, and it's been a fantastic reset, uh, refocus. Um, and recharge as cheesy as and as silly as that may seem after a stage race for me. Uh, yeah, I feel very invigorated and I feel very excited to be back. And, and I've taken a lot of lessons from this race and already started applying them to, to my life uh, and business and goal setting and stuff like that. And, and I just feel like it's it's uh, a, a different job finished the race and started the race. Yeah, you kind of touched on what I was getting at there because a, a race like this is about more than just running. It's more than the competition. And it is something that will change you for the better if you allow it to. Now, do you remember the conversation that we had when you were in the airport waiting for your flight to South America? What was on your mind then? Uh, there was a lot of self-doubt. There was a lot of... Um, the anticipation was very, very high. Uh, I suppose... The biggest emotion for me, there was like a torn emotion um, and an apprehensive emotion that that was, I couldn't, I couldn't get away from it. And it took from my build-up to the race and it took from my experience of the build-up to the race. But uh, I, got, I sent you a text um I said, uh, apprehensive about this one for some reason. And you said, heightened state, heightened state of awareness, survival mode. I said you're right, and you said you'll embrace it, and gave me the thumbs up. Uh, very, a very simple, you know, you know the the analogy of the the the, the guy who who services the boat, and he you know taps around the boat and finds what taps the engine three times, and the engine is fixed. Have you ever heard of that story about the, this? No, you know. So uh, you know, I don't know. This I'm sure is a, is a kind of a fable, but a big a big oil tanker was docked up, and the engine wasn't working. So there's all these engineers and guys coming in trying to fix this engine and they couldn't get it to, to, to go and of course it was costing thousands and hundreds of thousands to sit here so this old guy they, they heard of this old guy who used to work in the dock, docks on engines similar to it so the chance of getting him in and he came in and he walked around the engine and you know he, he looked around it for a couple of minutes and tapped the engine in two places and turned the screw and the whole engine fired up and uh, the guys said to him hey, you know Gene this is amazing and he sends him an invoice then or a bill for you know, 10 grand or 20 grand. And I said, Gene, he 10 grand or 20 grand just to top the engine in three places. And he said, no, no, 10 grand to spend 40 years to know which three places to top the engine. And that's, and that's the, the, that reminds me of that line. I just, when I messaged you and said, I'm apprehensive about that race. And you just, you know, you said, you, you said four words and gave me a thumbs up and it was enough to uh, put my mind at ease. So, um, yeah, that's, it it just I, I appreciated that I have to say. Actually, that reminds me of a story of uh, the person who designed the logo for Citibank. It was done okay. in a coffee shop. They had this person in from the uh, having a meeting with someone from the design company, and said what they wanted to do, and this person just drew out a design on a napkin and gave it to them. And they said, how come it only took you like three seconds to come up with that? So no, no, it took three seconds and 30 years. What I've put on the paper yeah. there is an accumulation of all the stuff I've done, all the stuff I've read, everything that I've seen over the past 30 years. And that's what it's after. It's after coming out with that solution that you wanted to your problem. Now, speaking yeah. of problems, 
I mentioned you have my hammock and that was because <laughs> of delays that you had with some of your kids arriving. How did you yeah. feel not knowing that you didn't have all the record, record kit and it's not always possible yeah. to just uh, go out and buy these specialised specific items. So in this, this situation, uh, you had something that was out of your control. Normally it's very, very easy to have the kit that we need. It's easy to do the training. So we call them the controllables. If you mm-hmm. can't control something that's very, very easy to control and there's so much else that's going to be out of your control, how did you, how did you feel knowing that you were missing bits of kit? It's a very uh, good and relevant question to this entire build-up for me to the race because the controllables, the training, you know, the recovery, all that, that's fine. Uh, the uncontrollable pieces to it were, were the ones that caused all the stress. The, you know, I had a I had a sponsor, potential sponsor lined up that didn't materialise. Um, I was kind of hanging tight to order my kit until the sponsor cleared and they didn't. So I ordered my kit. I ordered my kit six weeks out, eight weeks out, certain things. Uh, my hammock still hasn't arrived. So, um, you know, I, I ordered a hammock in and it, it just unfortunately, Portugal's postal service and delivery system is just absolutely terrible. Uh, I ordered I ordered my bag three times from different companies to different places. It ended up arriving in London 40 minutes before Spencer left his house. My bag arrived. Uh, and and he brought it. Now I had a backup bag, but you know when you have your kit laid out, you have your plan laid out, your space measured, and bearing in mind that a race like this, you know you've got your toothbrush uh, cut, you cut the handle off the toothbrush so it's only about an inch long. You have, you know, you take food out of bags, you, you take your medication out of the boxes, you take your, you know, everything is everything is counted, everything is quantified, and then when there's all of these things that you have to quantify, yet there's so many uncontrollable pieces to it uh, that absolutely and utterly threw me for the entire race. So I didn't know until I landed in Madrid that, that Spencer actually had my bag and Spencer Matthews, who was doing the race with me. So uh, I, I found it very stressful, John. It was the hardest part of the race. And it, and again, like I say, it took from my experience of the build-up. I still put the work in, but I had, I had a lot of self-doubt about this race. Not necessarily in my capacity, I suppose, doubt about... Um, if it was the right thing to do or not, the, the financial cost. And, you know, look, we've had a tough couple of years with different things going on. And then I was going to a, an area that was, you know, um, uh, not a hot spot for it, but there's malaria, there's Zika, and there's a whole lot of other disease there that I didn't want to bring it home. A whole lot of things like, uh, you know, that were uncontrollable, that were that were not things I experienced for the ice, but they uh, brought up a different level of stress for me. That's been honest. I, I mean, I'm looking at my arms and legs here now. I, have, I, I get rises at times in my life when I have the patches still that, that, of where my my legs were, were pretty raw with psoriasis with just the stress of this of this build up so I suppose that both mentally and then physically it manifested in me you know uh, in different ways for me um, but look we, we got there in the end Yeah I think if there's any bit of anxiety there and then stuff that should be easy to control isn't going the way you need it to go it just kind of adds mm. adds to the stress. And as you mentioned, you had a backup bag. A backup is a backup. It's not your first choice. Like a spare weight on the car is a backup. Yeah. It'll do what's required, but only for a certain amount of time. It's not the most comfortable way to do something. So anyway, look, at you have all your gear. You flew over the race there. So let's get into the race. So tell us a bit about the race. 
I'll tell you a bit about the, the couple of days before the race. I thought it was prepped, and this is again what happens when your eyes are not on on the right thing. I was focused on, I was looking at tracking numbers and delivery and calling the Portuguese postal service. And I didn't factor in the altitude. The one thing that I didn't factor in properly was uh, we flew from, from, so I had to drive to Seville, fly from Seville to Madrid, fly from Madrid to Lima, fly from Lima to Cusco. And Lima's at sea level and Cusco's at 3,500 metres above sea level. So I got to uh, I got to Cusco and noticed walking down the streets that I was quite breathless. Um, and uh, I was there obviously with Spencer and we were set into the hotel and I was like, Jeannie McAfee retired and jet lag, etc. Went to bed and then that night woke up and my nose was bleeding uh, from the altitude. I never get nosebleeds ever unless I get a slap in the face. So, uh, you know, the, the hotel canisters of oxygen in the reception for 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 uh, for the altitude. There's uh, cocoa leaves there that you can cocoa leaf tea that you can drink to help with the altitude. Uh, so the altitude was a real issue, um, and that was coupled then with some of the guys, a guy called Jonathan Payne, who was due to be doing the race, um, putting pictures up on his Instagram where he was actually in a hospital. He had, don't quote me, but I think it's an edema on his lung or one of his lungs effectively. Uh, failed or collapsed and uh, he was in an oxygen uh, hyperbaric chamber and he was on drips and he was on all sorts of things um, and unfortunately he never even got to the start line because the altitude before the race even started in Cusco was was pretty heavy going and so that in itself was, was something that again just kept rocking me I have a video that I sent, sent to Adrian I'm lying in bed and, and I like my my pulse you can see the pulse on both sides of my neck my neck like very visibly, you could see my neck pulsing in and out where my heart was just beating so hard and I was working so hard to deal with the the, um, the altitude, which I'd never experienced it before. And I think the problem was not just the altitude, but going from sea level straight to altitude uh, was was the challenge. Well, that's one of the reasons why they don't fly to Everest Base Camp. They walk to Everest Base Camp to allow the body to yeah. acclimatise. Now, seeing as you're at the going back to a little bit before the race and you have to create another question for me, so when we when people think of ultra distance stage races, the first thought was of the more popular desert type race, because the Marathon des Sables was mm-hmm. probably one of the, the first ones out there. Or frozen mm-hmm. trails which which you've done. So why why did you pick the jungle? And what would have been your, your biggest fear when thinking about a race? Or did you only start uh, realizing fears after you said yes I'm going to do it? Uh, the latter. I'm a I'm a kind of a, a jump a jump and then you know jump first and then ask questions later. Uh, Spencer Matthews again put it to me about it. Um, he was like, would, we, would you do the jungle ultra with me? And, and I said, yeah, if you can get a sponsorship to do it, I definitely will. And I didn't even look at what the race was. Um, but anyway, we got signed up to the race, and I just wanted to take this opportunity actually to mention the race organisers beyond the ultimate. Um, and Chris King and Jenny Hall from that team who uh, were very, very obliging and very, you know, they got us signed up, got us in late into the race uh, and the Beyond the Ultimate crew from start to finish ran an absolutely amazing event, kept everybody very safe in one of the most hostile parts of the world, um, you know, and, and, and treated us very well. And, you know, I really, really couldn't say enough positive things about the experience they create for people and, and how professionally they do it. Um, so, 
So I signed up and then I kind of looked at it in more detail. I think I was about 10 weeks out, 11 weeks out. I started training properly from nine weeks out. Um, but, you know, like, it's amazing how much I learned from the ice ultra in February of last year that straight away just kicked me into gear uh, for this one as well. Uh, my biggest my biggest fears then about the jungle, the things I started worrying about were um, not the snakes, not the spiders, not the jaguars, not the, the bears, not the, you know, not the, any of that stuff, but more the smaller stuff, the, you know, the parasites in the water, the Yeah, the, the, stuff, you, the stuff you can't see. You can't defend you can't against see. yourself as easily. And just as you exactly. mentioned it being it, it being hostile, yeah, the jungle is one of the most inhospitable places you can go. If you live there, it has everything. If you're just visiting the place, you could say it has nothing except everything that wants to going to eat you or defend itself against you. And that's what it's doing. Uh, they don't. The jungle doesn't want you in it. And the most recent phone call we had was you telling me that you were replacing my hammock, which I was telling you not to be doing it. And the reason you said is because it, it's mouldy and destroyed because of that one week in the jungle. Mm-hmm. So the mm-hmm. jungle, and you, you were probably spending each day with muddy shoes. Your, as we mentioned, your, mm-hmm. your clothing is just going to drench, but it's not drenched with water, it's drenched with sweat, which itself mm-hmm. is a bacteria. And... Exactly. If if when when that starts to fester, uh, it starts to cause problems. It'll break down the clothing as well. So it's here, and then yeah. the, there's insects that we we've never even heard of. So everything is a problem. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned then that what you learned from the uh, being on the ice that that did help. So some skills are transferable, like the fitness side of things and going that distance. But it's it is a totally different environment. Like you. Yeah, everything gets gets kind of flipped upside down, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's see, we landed in in where well, we we drove eight hours or six hours up to to Cloud Camp, and that's actually three and a half thousand meters above sea level, or closer to three eight above sea level. So we're still up at altitude, and then you know we had a we we were sleeping in hammocks. It's a self sufficient race. You carry your hammock, your food, you get your kits all checked out. You do all the run, all the you know the the medical clearance stuff. You sign the waiver, uh, you do all your bits and bobs, and then there's a there's a race briefing, and they talk about the dangers of the area. You know, you've got a tracking device on you, and you you know if, if there's a serious injury, you can press the tracking device. But uh, you know you're, you could be forty kilometres from a forest trail. Uh, bearing in mind, like there's one kilometre I did one time took me forty eight minutes um, to get up a hill, and and that was me pushing hard. It's just you're, you're rock climbing, you know, you're rock climbing the time. So, so like 10 kilometers in the jungle is like 30 kilometers on a road. Uh, but like the, the one word, one phrase that Chris King used, uh, which which resonated with me very quickly. And um, when you're in a heightened state of arousal, as you say, or a heightened state of survival mode, it's amazing how memories come back to you. And Chris said the two most dangerous things um, out here are you the most dangerous thing to yourself, number one. And then the second thing is uh, is like your 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 mosquitoes and the smaller little bits and bit bobs like that. There are snakes, there are spiders. The National Geographic right there filming this these bears that were in the area. We ran past bear houses, whatever they're called, dens. Uh, there's all this stuff. But once Chris King said to me, 
or said to the group, you know, the, that you're the most dangerous thing out here, that like your hygiene and how you manage yourself and hydrate yourself and your, your I, I don't know what the phrase, like your self-care as such um, is what is going to make you sick or it's going to get you injured or it's going to, you know, whatever. I remember you telling me years ago about your saliva on a water bottle if it's left alone. I think you spoke about this after the ice as well. If it's left and you're not there, you don't wash it off. That it's the bacteria effectively that's in that can change and become quite aggravating for your stomach, stuff like that. So I, I became a complete not a neat freak. And I had, and, and then we had, as mandatory, we had to have hand sanitizer on us just to keep our hands clean because the jungle is a different type of dirty, but it's a, it's quite a dirty place in a lot of ways because there is so much bacteria and, you know, animal stuff and all the rest of it in the water and, and the water could be either perhaps polluted or, or just full of, of a, a bacteria, a parasite or something like that. So, and, and you're wearing gloves, which means, uh, because your hands are getting torn so much, you're wearing gloves, which means that you're sweating in these gloves, so the sweat on your hands, your hands are very dirty. Every time I, I touched, you know, every time I, I topped up water, I washed the water bottles. Every time I I took, um, you know, something I didn't use my hand, I washed my hands beforehand. If I applied insect repellent, which you have to do a lot, if I applied sun cream, I washed my bottles down. Um, every night I got hot water and, and rinsed my bottles. Every time I ate food, I got boiling water, washed my spoons, washed my bowls. Every time I finished, I washed my spoons, washed my bowls. And uh, I didn't have one stomach issue I'd regular bowel movements. Anyone who's done ultra races and stage races before, you'll get upset stomachs. You'll get either diarrhea or constipation. I had regular bowel movements. Like all that sort of stuff was was just bang on, and I attribute it to being a little bit OCD, but necessarily so for for a few days. Again, like I said, your words came to ear that you know washing and a simple a simple little task like staying on top of that. And um, I believe uh, was, was a big part of me having, you know, an element of success in the race. The funny thing about listening to you talking there is there's people, people probably listening in and the more you're going on, they're probably going to think, where do I sign up like? You know, you're, you're probably uh, sell, sell, make, you're making it more attractive, you know, the more you talk like. Anyway, so yeah. just you mentioned well, there's a lot of hazards in, in the jungle insects the plants even the water and you have to treat all, all water as suspect but then there's other stuff like you get your feet being continuously wet and there's a condition called trench foot and you're more yeah. susceptible to blisters did you have any issues with your feet because your, your feet are so important in, in an environment like this yeah. I feel now like I'm boasting and I don't mean that, that this way I, I'm saying this purely from a this is what I've learned, um, an observational thing. I'm not saying it from how great I am, but I, I honestly finished. I've, I've won, I look at my feet now, I've won tiny little bruised nail, and I got a tiny cut where a spike went through my shoe into one of my toes. Other than that, my feet, honestly, you'd put them in a set of high heels and think they look great. Um, but the thing about this is, I looked at my feet, I took photographs of my feet after the ice ultra, now different shoes on, and I looked at where all the blisters were, and the night before day one, I cleaned my feet down and I wrapped every every part of my foot that had blisters on it before, K taped around the heel, and all of the areas that are that are prone to to blisters. Uh, and I did not have one single blister on my on my toes for the whole race. Now I wore the same clothes every single day you wear here because you don't want to bring a change of clothes. I had I had, I had a pair of like recovery tights that I put on at night. 
I put, used to put Tiger Balm on my legs and then recovery tights on and then get into bed and sleep. And I had a light top that I wore as well. Um, sorry, one thing to note, which which was a, a bit of a change, the first night, so we're in the jungle, like you said, 30 degrees heat, 100% humidity. On the first night, we got into our, our micro light sleeping bags and about 12 o'clock in, in, in the morning or 12 o'clock at night, everyone's getting out of their beds going looking for extra clothes because everything started to freeze. The fly screen or whatever, or the moisture cover for the for the hammock had a layer of, of dew on it that froze. So this again shows like the jungle has this chronic heat during the day and this cool temperature once you're at altitude that like I shivered. My feet went numb and I shivered in the bed. I actually got a jumper and wrapped it around my feet to try and get the heat back into them before the race even started. Once we'd given all our clothes away, we couldn't do that. So I wrapped my feet and I looked after them and I had my little routine every night. I'd take, them, take the bandages off, I'd clean them up and i go again to the extent that on the third or fourth day, the medics kind of went, oh, we haven't really met you yet. Are you doing okay? What's going on? You haven't been at our, at our you know, the medics were dressing wounds from day one and day two. And I was very fortunate that I looked after my feet and didn't didn't have to worry about that. When you were last talking to me, you were telling me about how cold it got at night. And I was actually surprised that I, I didn't know that. Now, mm-hmm. I, I've been to the jungle, but I didn't go deep into it the way you did. And I didn't experience that extreme cold. But nighttime, did you have a problem sleeping? Like, what about sounds at night? And in the area that you were, like one thing I remember from being in the jungle was that it gets very, very dark because the light couldn't mm-hmm. penetrate the tree canopy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Was yeah. it that way where you were? Yeah. We had a mandatory two-head torches, I think we had to bring out two-head torches and spare batteries um, and all that sort of stuff. Like once six o'clock comes, it's black dark. Um, at night, you set your... Ca- so the... Beyond the Ultimate Team have these poles set up so you can come in and you can rig up your hammock and, you know, you can get this boiling water provided so you can get your meal into you. And then, for me, it was a case of, like, stretch, recover, focus on the next day, have a quick chat or whatever, get my hydration right, get my uh, deep uh, my tiger bam on and get ready and get into bed. And thank you again for the loan of your hammock. Your hammock became my area for solitude, my, uh, my area of, sorry, like, kind of calm and solitude it was the one con- the only consistent for the whole race was that you know the thought of being in a little hammock which is like a sleeping bag effectively it's got a fly net on it's kind of like a tent that's suspended from the poles in a sense and you know you've got all sorts of creepy crawly mosquito spider things climbing across this all night long so it was the Hennessy hammock and I couldn't um, couldn't say a bad word about it it, it was really fantastic but it, it became I had bad, so my watch tracks my sleep obviously at night and I was getting red lights on my recovery in a hotel in Cusco and my first green light I got in recovery was actually after night one of sleeping in the hammock and night two, night three, my sleep continued to improve. Now by night four, status come down and by night five, it, it come right down. But I actually found that moment of getting into the hammock, having my routine, turning off the light. If you think about the Jungle Book or any any jungle program you've ever heard where you hear the you know the the monkeys the the the, the birds the the roaring of something that you don't know what it is the crickets it's just like as soon as the lights go down the sound goes up and it was an audio experience that um you know it it was putting me to sleep and i actually found it very uh very relaxing now you're in it you're in it you're with a group of, of other people around you there is a local um, proving guy on, in the camp as well because there are issues with snakes. Um, there was a 
bush, massive snake uh, came into the camp last year, a very dangerous snake. Um, and uh, unfortunately, it had to be disposed of by the local guy with a machete, got rid of it. Um, but you're, you're worrying about stuff like that. You need to go to the loo. You're drinking lots of water. You're getting up to go to the loo at night. The most dangerous thing is that um, if your shoes are on the ground, spiders and scorpions get into your shoes. So you have to shake all that stuff out. But then the second thing is that there's snakes in the grass you're walking through. Uh, so, you know, so it... it Nighttime was when you when you were asleep or when you were listening to it. It was a very tranquil experience. You've no phone. You're not winding down looking at Instagram. You've no phone, um, and and you are you know you're drifting off to the sound of of these animals that, um, you know some species of animals haven't even been discovered yet in some of the places we were going. You know it's it's so remote. Now the one little thing I would say in advice to anyone that's going to do the race is bring earplugs with you. I know that's counterintuitive to what I just said. But unfortunately, what happens when you're in a camp with people who are sleeping most likely on their backs in hammocks, they start to snore. The tired they get, the more they're snoring. Snoring actually becomes an issue. If, you, if you're only getting four hours sleep or five hours sleep, you don't want an hour of that to be lost to you know someone snoring right beside you. So um, I probably would recommend that you bring earplugs, listen to the, to the lovely sounds of the jungle for a few minutes and then stick the earplugs in and work on your, your sleep quality. I think that's something I would definitely recommend. That's a good tip. Now let's get back to the, the hammock again and talk about kit familiarity. Did you have time to actually practice with the kit that you were going to be using or did you bother? Like, Did you actually sleep in the hammock or set the hammock up before you travelled over? Yeah. Yeah, I set the hammock up. I didn't sleep in it. I tied it to two concrete pillars near my house and just got used to the figure of eight knots that you had to put into it and uh, familiarise myself with the layout the the only, you know, the uh, the only thing is obviously you're coming in, it could be, you know, you could be quite fatigued and tired. So you don't, you're kind of fumbling around with it. And, uh, you know, I, I felt quite confident in my hammock tying up skills by the end of it. Um, and honestly, like when we finished the race, we had the option to stay in a local kind of guest house or sleep in our hammock. And this was at the end of day five. And myself and Spencer both opted to sleep in our hammock in our sleeping bag. You know, we, we, were, we were very comfortable in it. Right. Would you not have liked the experience of, uh, you know, local hospitality? Uh, well, we'd experienced local hospitality because the little town that we finished in, I call it a town, there was no tarmac on the road. It was a shanty, small little town. Um, and we'd experienced the local hospitality. There was like a few lads on a, in a, like a pipe band and there were kids out running around and we were getting food. And uh, we'd experienced enough local hospitality to, to know that we were just as happy to sleep in our, in our hammocks. Yeah, I suppose so. And then you're not going to get a chance to sleep in a hammock when you get back home, really. Well, no, not unless I get thrown out. <laughs> now, with the training, how do you train for something like this when you can't recreate the conditions? You can't recreate the conditions, but you can recreate the stress. So, Good answer. But explain it. My, my, uh, I think everyone needs a slightly different approach to training like this. My... If I was to prioritise things on a, on, a, on, a train, on an event like this, I think the hardest thing that most people struggle with is accumulation of volume. Accumulation of 50k one day, 40k next day, 50k next day. It's not, they might be able to run 70k, but then they're used to taking a day off. And for the ice, I, I did the same thing. Um, I trained hard for three days and then I took a minimum of three days off. And that, that was my constant training cycle. And it went, because I had nine weeks, I didn't have... Uh, you know, a, a, a kind of a big taper period and I didn't have like a mesocycle to it. I went 
for three days and then I increased my volume. And my three days, I did one day long, one day fast intervals on hills, and then another day either running with a weighted vest or rucking with a backpack and a weighted vest. So I got used to three days where I do 85 or 95, or I think at the end I did 115K in three days uh, in, in, in a training block. Um, and I just kept building all that up. I got used to what I was going to support myself nutritionally with. Uh, I got used, to, I did it at, at peak um, peak times of the day here in Portugal, which did make it a little bit easier. I got used to the hot, to the heat. And, and that's what I did. I did it a lot of times with very little food. So I said, right, there's days here I might not have had enough food and I'm going to feel quite hungry. Um, I did it without use of my phone. I was never listening to music. The one thing I didn't do, which I should have, I didn't realize, nobody realized was, I looked at my watch and used my watch and distance, whereas in the jungle, because it was so remote, GPS just didn't work out there. So, you know, one person's watch would say we did 42K, someone else's watch would say we did 32K, someone else's watch would say we did 46K. And because the canopy of the jungle throws off the GPS so much anyway, and then the signal itself is so bad. So we'd, we'd no phone coverage out there anyway, and I knew that. I'm not, I don't care about listening to music. So some people are very dependent on, on music when they train. I didn't have that at all, and I generally don't. Anyway, that was fine. Um, the one thing I would have done different is I would have just gone, right, I'm going to go out, I'm going to go from A to B, and I, I know that's about 50 or 60K, but I'm not going to look at my watch because... You start going, okay, 10K to go or 5K to go or 15K down. And you start using these little breaks and you don't have that luxury in the jungle. So um, I don't know if that answers your question on how I trained, but the days I didn't train were the important days. So the days I didn't train, I sorry, I didn't run or, or do jungle-specific stuff. I did strength and conditioning stuff work uh, still. I did soft tissue work, a lot of it, and I did a lot of mobility work. Um and I just kept my, you know, kept working on my recovery. And, and people are sick and tired of listening to me talking about the importance of recovery, recovery, recovery. I think, you know, as John O'Regan would say, you can only train what you can recover from. Or you have a famous line, something like that. Yeah, that's uh, it. But, uh, but, uh, so, so you just, as you mentioned there, when you say you're non-training days, like, there were actually non-running days, but the other days were training. Exactly. And you were still training some other part of the system, whether that was the the physical or the or the mental, or yeah. preparing your body to kind of do it all over again. Yeah, and you you can only do yeah. what you can recover from. And what I find exactly. is that some people do too much, and some people don't do enough. And it's very easy to do too much by not doing enough. And what I mean by that is, if you're not consistent with your training, and you just go out and just try and do something that's high volume, you're going to get injured. It takes time to actually yeah. get to the point where you can cover distances comfortably without mm. having any issues. So if you're somebody who hasn't been training and wants to just go out and run 30, 40 kilometers, it's it's not good. You have to accumulate the distance over time. It's like, I suppose, as well yeah. in the gym. If you go in and are doing the bench press, you don't go into the gym and go and do your, your max rep just as you lie down the bench, you'll, you'll build up to that. You'll start with just the bar. You might start with some sure. other stuff first if you're serious, mobility work. You'll start with the bar and then you'll gradually add the race, add, add the weight on. As you put extra yeah. weight on, you reduce the number of reps. So each exactly. rep, you're probably lifting close enough to the same volume if you mix it up. But that's it. It's an accumulation of what you do over time. Exactly. Now, let's just go back to what you mentioned with the hygiene. There's, the more extreme the environment, the more important 
the hygiene comes in. And mm-hmm. I've always said to people that really, with a lot of these races, I, I think that something that's really, really important, an important skill is camp craft, being able to do those things, knowing the importance of being able to yeah. keep your hands clean, uh, how to go to the toilet in in the woods and to do it safely. And somebody who's inexperienced, it's very easy to bring something back with you into the camp, like to, to bring back bacteria. So it's very, very important yeah. that you're going to clue into that. But if you're somewhere like the jungle and you're with a group of people who might not be that experienced with, with their camp craft and the importance of, of the hygiene, did it happen or might you have seen it that as people start to get mentally fatigued or physically fatigued, that they start to let their guard down a bit and they're not as concerned about their hygiene. I can remember when doing a race and the first couple of days, if someone was going to, going to the toilet, they would do anything with a bit of privacy, like they might march off for two kilometres, but then they start coming kind of close to the camp, close to the camp. Yeah. And a problem yeah. with that is, if you're eating and doing your business in the same general area, there's are insects and flies around and the flies can be going to the toilet area and also coming back to the food area. You don't know that. Exactly. Was there any issues there, I suppose, with uh, with discipline around hygiene? Yeah, there was. Discipline went out the window for some people quite quickly. Um, and uh, again, Chris did bring that to people's attention, that simple, simple things like, uh, what was that line you used? Camp craft? Is that what you called it? No? Oh. Yeah, camp craft, yeah, like kind of camping skills. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, I made a point of not walking anywhere like their feet, even though you've been in wet water. Yes, as simple as that, yeah. I, like if I'm going from the from the hammock to the food place or to you know there was a couple of places we went to where there was we stopped in a little town at a little a little not a town a little village and there was a toilet in the village you know so you could go over and there was a hole in the ground it was a, a shit hole literally um you know so you could walk over that to go to the bathroom but like anything I did I did in in my shoes but there were people doing that barefoot with open wounds on their feet you know excuse me that became very relaxed as things went on people picking dropping a fork picking it up off the ground and eating it but there's dogs chickens kids in their bare feet running around on the same same surface that you're eating you're picking your food up off of um and i just said i had a i had a, a very you know um consistent approach of going i'm not sharing anything with anyone here uh i'm not sitting close to someone if someone's looking sick i'm keeping my distance and I'm just going to double wash everything and I sanitize everything. And yeah, there were guys, I mean, there was some, some people got quite sick stomach-wise um, and there was, then that obviously resulted in cramping and a whole lot of and, and DNFing and all the rest of it. Um, yeah, like, like the endurance is, is not just for the six, eight or ten hours of the race. It's it, in nourishment. How you nourish your body is what is what actually builds endurance, you know, is, is what, what true endurance actually is how you nourish your body with the energy you're allowing around you. Like if there's someone, I had one day where there was a guy who had a very bad series of cramping and he was kind of blacking out a little bit and the medics were around him and I started going, holy shit, what have I entered here? This is crazy, this could happen to me. And I went, hold on a second, get away from this. This is not positive, it's not fueling you here. So like all of that stuff that you're allowing in uh, is what either facilitates and supports your endurance or can hamper it big time. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question really or not, but I definitely was very aware of what I was doing around hygiene. No, it does. And, and I 
just kind of hopefully someone listening in will kind of take something from that because it is so important and that's why it was said to you before you started the race that you are the biggest danger to yourself out there because it's yeah. you that can make yourself sick it's you that can get yourself injured and it can happen yeah. with just a bit of laziness or letting your guard down and you can actually take yourself out of the race so you have to re- there has to be a certain amount of uh, accountability and personal responsibility like I'm very yeah. very careful when I go to, go to these places very very careful and even with regards to stuff that I would eat in certain places like if I was get if I was in a village and was getting maybe fruit, you take a fruit that has to be peeled, not something that yeah. the skin you eat on it because you you just don't know. And you've got to be really, course, really careful. Yeah. Now, now just as I mentioned with fruit, when you were out in the trail, were you tempted or did you try to maybe eat anything along the way that was growing there? No. Okay. There, no. There there was and there was no rule saying you couldn't. Uh but I just I, I, I mean, I'm sure there's a psychologist listening to this going, this guy's a bit OCD about things, but I just had, I had my my food that I was taking in, I had my routine. I took, you know, some people wouldn't do, but I took gels, uh, I took um, tailwind electrolytes, and I had my food that I was taking, and I just knew everything that worked for me, and I didn't, I wasn't tempted by the apple, I wasn't tempted by the, the fruit hanging from the trees, and... Um, uh, no, I, you you could have done it. I'd, I'd imagine I didn't hear of anyone that did. I just stuck to my own. The, the only time I took took something was on. Um, I might be jumping ahead of things for you, but on, on day five, I went through a little period where I started to to crash a little bit, and there was a guy with me who gave me a gel. Um, Julian from South Africa is a great guy. Um, and even then, when I took the gel, I, I I put it straight to my mouth to tear the thing off, and I went, "Oh shit, this has been in a sweaty pack," you know. Uh, you know, so you're you're like gargling water, and you might spitting it out and giving it a rinse down before you you take the take the contents of the gel. But then, no, I wasn't tempted to take any fruits or anything. There are like just bananas and all sorts of um, what are they? Um, mangoes, um, papaya. Like there was lots. It was. In, I mean, the place is abundant with with life. There's things growing up. There's things growing down. There's things growing off the things that are growing up. There's things growing off the things that are growing down. You know, there's just vegetation and water and life and ants doing something here and, uh, you know, monkeys throwing stuff at you from a tree over there. There's just life everywhere and there's food everywhere. It's a very, you know, it's a very uh, thriving, fertile place that that's very attractive, yet very hospitable or hostile and, and dangerous and... and, and um, you know, and, and like you said, if you stand still long enough, everything's trying to get you, you know? Yeah, it sounds amazing. Like, it really, really does. And I was looking over the race briefing and I could see the different stages and where they were bringing you. And as with a lot of these stage races, like, they do make the course very, very interesting. So I think if anybody's kind of listening in, they're interested in doing, this, doing some kind of a, a stage race, they're definitely worth worth doing, and they are things that can be, really can be life changing if you allow them to be. Like you got to embrace the experience, be ready to yeah. sort of have a little bit of discomfort. Like it's it it is kind of a holiday to when you're going kind to of interested in these things, but it's it's not the same as going to a hotel for a holiday where you're getting stuff handed to you. Like there is a bit of a struggle when you're out there. Like you ha- you have to work for what you for what you get, and I think yeah. that it does actually give you. 
put a good sense of an appreciation of the things that you do have when you come home like you yeah know. yeah we checked into a nice hotel in Cusco when it was over and again I, I'd been in the same clothes now for seven days I'd just after getting off a of, minibus out of the jungle for eight hours got into a lovely hotel and I, I got to the toilet and there was an abundance of toilet paper and I was like oh my god what a luxury uh, I got into a shower and it honestly just felt like the most amazing experience. I had a steak and some chips and uh, and, it, and they melted in my mouth. It was lovely. Um, but I do think that when you take these luxuries out of our life for, for a period of time, and even if that's just like giving up coffee at home for a week or, you know, alcohol or Netflix or whatever that is, I think when you take these things out of your life for a little period of time, and you simplify things down, it's amazing. I think it's a very, very, very beneficial thing for everybody to do, regardless of if they want to detox, lose weight, get healthy or not. I think it's good to be without these things for a period. I think when you're in a, in a, in a period of your life that has so much intensity and you've got such a heightened state of survival, function, drive, fear, you, you call on more life experiences and you call more from your senses than you would in five years of regular living. So, you know, five days uh, of that isolation and that intensity and that deprivation of things, the person that, that gets in there and endures that, you know, you learn. If you allow yourself, if you allow yourself to, to be open to learning and to, to listening, you experience more growth there personally than you do in five years of sitting at your desk working and reading your book. Yeah, that's that's well said. And I think that sometimes when you're doing these races, you can be asking yourself during the race, why am I doing this? You know, you get those mm-hmm. points where you say, why am I doing this? And the reality mm-hmm. of it is, or the truth of it is, that you might not realise why you're actually doing it until you get to the finish line. 100%. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't realise. You might think you know, uh, but but like I had a, Spencer would mind me t- talking about this. But before the race, I had said to him, I was like, I feel like I could have a tear now at the end of this race. It's such a big emotional one for me, and I feel so torn about it and all the rest of it. I just want the second thing to be over, you know, kind of this sort of carry on. You, you, you're kind of saying that not without trying to sound, you know. Now, I don't know that you don't appreciate what you're doing and the Spencer said you know he's like I don't cry I haven't cried since I fell off my bike when I was five you know this sort of stuff um, and on the flight home he was of course sitting up in first class uh, but he got into in, in onto the plane and he, he lay down he started watching the film and he said he started to cry and he said he started to wail and he said he cried for an hour and a half he pulled a blanket over his head and he said he just, he just started crying he said I can't explain why now, to give a little bit of a background on Spencer's race, Spencer came into the race with an ankle injury, was medicated up by a doctor, obviously, with a strong painkiller, and he took a lot of that. Now, he dug deep and pushed hard, um, and then the, the medics from Beyond the Ultimate were giving him codeine for pain, and he he took all my paracetamol for pain, and he really, like the man, dug into a level of grit that I didn't have to go anywhere near and wouldn't have wanted to have to go anywhere near. Um, and he got through the race, and he was one of the six that completed it, or five that completed it. Uh, now he completed it, and he sat in a chair, and his whole body went into shock. 
had to put him in a foil blanket. He was his eyes were rolling in his head. He was shaking. He had goose pimples. He had to get food into him. He was in a bad, bad way. Uh, and then he kind of got on the plane to fly home, and he started to cry, and these tears came out. And like, you know, you can you can kind of laugh at that situation. You can think that sounds a bit stupid, or you can think whatever. But there's a cathartic release. From from the experience of that level of exertion, that um, that is is a is, is a very very real um, a real thing. It's a very you know it's living it's living on a on a very serious level where you are going through these areas where you know one slip of on a on a wet mossy rock you bang your head you're you're thirty kilometers from help you're gone you know. Or you know, there's all of these risks involved. You're pushing your body harder than it 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 should be pushed in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, you're you're fighting you're fighting cramping, perhaps you're fighting, you know, your mind. You're fighting sleep deprivation, and you're doing that, and you're enduring that. And when you endure that, and you complete that, there's 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 something there that's not really explain uh, explainable, if that's the right word. Um. There is an emotional thing, or there's a, there's a transition, or there's a learning, or there's a whatever it is for each. Everyone has a different experience of the race, um, and that's it's a very a very special thing to get to to share with someone actually, and it's a very special thing to get to even experience for yourself. And just as you mentioned, Spencer, you finished second and third, wasn't it, in the race? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we were by far not the best runners in the race. But I'd say well, we you survived. You were you were the best survivors. We were the most stubborn, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, the guy who won the race is a phenomenal athlete. He finished thirtieth in the marathon the Saab this year. Um, but there were other very good runners in there, and sub three marathon, sub three hour marathon runners in there, and uh, and they just didn't endure the same way. You know, I'm not going to say it was their fault there or anything else like that. I think. I personally have experienced with these races and maybe this shows something about me not pacing myself properly, but as these races go on, I feel like I get stronger. I feel like, and I'm not, I'm not saying that I actually get stronger, but I feel like people go downhill quicker than I go downhill. I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm not pushing myself fast enough or maybe I'm sitting at just the right side of pushing myself. I don't know, but... I remember feeling that once I finished the ice and I finished this race going, Jesus, imagine if you told us to turn around and run back now and do the five days again. So you start with the 75 days, the 75k day and you finish with the 30k day. I'm like, I'd say game on, let's go. And um, yeah, you know, like it's, it's just, I think it's just down to how you, how you support yourself and possibly also I, I tend to start heavier than most people. I'll have, more food, and I'll have just I'll always err on the side of carrying a little bit more than I need in, in both food, but also, you know, I had different bits and bobs of kit that I just felt I needed to bring with me. Yeah, that's a good answer. So the, there's a lot in that, and a lot of learning. As I'm when I think back over what we were talking about, it was it's been a bit disjointed. We went all over the place, and we didn't really talk too yeah. much about the actual stages of the race, but. I kind of like to touch on stuff that's kind of connected to it and I suppose helped with your success along the way. You've also done a podcast with Spencer. Does that touch on the race a bit more seeing as he did it as well? Yeah, the um, Big Fish podcast, we spoke about it. Okay. The the irony and the funny thing is that 
when I speak to people about the race, it always becomes about everything but the race. Uh, it becomes about the sleep or it becomes about the food or it becomes about what's your experience or how did you overcome this or did you have any bad time, bad memory, bad experience. It doesn't come about, tell me about the full stage one, what was the hill like, what was the road like, what was the jungle, you know. Yeah. So that, which, which possibly says, you know, a bit more about what, what that type of race is, people understand. You know, if someone said, did you do a 5K and was it flat or was it hilly, was it fast, who won it, what sort of time was it? You know, it's more more micro details like that, whereas when it's, when it's a bigger race and there's more distance, people seem to be more interested in the, the mental endurance, the resilience, the breakdown, the pain, the discomfort, the feet, you know, that sort of stuff. And managing yourself during it, the problem solving, yeah. decision making, all all that kind of stuff, like the environmental factors. You have altitude, you have cold, you have heat, humidity. You mentioned how the altitude affected you, but what about the humidity? Because humidity can be a killer. Like that's heat can be a giver of energy, and also it can it can take your energy away from you. But humidity is a big problem in these conditions. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're dealing with it's it's funny the heat and I quite like the heat, but it's funny you're on an you're maybe on an open forest trail. So on day two there's 20 kilometers at the start of the 42k day, and there's 20 kilometers on a gradual downhill on a forest trail, uh, and then you you've got checkpoints at 10k, checkpoint at 20k, and then you're up into the jungle. And I I hit the half marathon that day at around 148. Like we we pushed pretty hard on the downhill, um, with a pack, you know, in that conditions. But it was very open and very hot, so we didn't have as much tree cover. So that heat was quite, um, quite heavy on your system. But once we got into the jungle, it was like it was like opening the door of a a hybrid between a sauna and a steam room. Um, and once you get into the jungle, the canopy's closed on top of you. And the water starts to run out of you like it is just coming in your mouth and out the out, out your pores. And the first time I, I, I properly experienced that really I was on day two. Um, and it actually threw me. I started to cramp a little bit. It was the only time in, in the race where I went, oh, sugar, I'm going to have to be careful here. My quad started to go getting that little you know that that pain where it's like someone's hitting you with a stick it's just this this pulsing that I, I've got hit with cramps before on the ice and it killed me for 25k and I went oh sugar I'm in trouble here and I couldn't get the moisture into me quick enough and I actually ended up just having to go heavy on the salt and the tailwind got me through that it was a real lesson the 20k that I'd done downhill was fine if that was the end of it but it was too fast to be then going into that sauna and then hitting a hill where you're like, you know, you're you're trudging up a hill, you're grabbing trees, grabbing vines, pulling yourself up this up this very steep, mucky, slippy incline, um, and your body's your body's going, you know, it's it's just heat overheating. And um, bear in mind, I opted for like a knee high sock, a calf compression thing to 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 stop my ankles getting bitten and stung, and I also had like arm sleeves that went up underneath my t-shirt, so I I had too much skin covered. Um, and I had gloves on, you know, so uh, you start going, you grab it, get to a river and you put your your buff into the river and you get the buff and put it around your neck to try and take down your core temperature a little bit. Uh, but, but yeah, that was something that was, I mean, I don't know how you could replicate that 
I don't know how you could train for that. And, it, and it's nearly a claustrophobic type of feeling. And you find yourself going, like, at one time, Spencer was about 50 metres behind me, and I just didn't want to be running beside him. I was sick of listening to him. So I went ahead of him a little bit on day three. And I knew he was behind me uh, because, you know, I, I hadn't gone fast enough behind him. But if I looked around, I couldn't hear him and I couldn't see him. Uh, and the visibility in the jungle is like a whiteout in the snow. You can't see around the corner. You can, I mean, if there's a straight trail in front of you, you can see. But, but, but like, there are, there are, you know, go around any sort of little corner and whatever. There's so much vegetation; it, it works like a sound barrier. It muffles out the sound, and then you can't see things. And like, you know, you, I, I came around the corner one time, on, and I was minding my own business, like running along pretty hard. And there was a guy standing in the middle of the track with a machete in his hand, a local guy. And I was just like, holy moly, where's this guy after coming out of? And like, you just don't see these people. And the thing about it is, you know, the, the bears, the jaguars, the cougars, all of these different things that are in the jungle are watching you the whole time, I'm sure. You know, you're being watched, um, but you just don't see. You're going along, you're going along hoping that nothing's, nothing's hostile there that's watching you. They're observers and, and you're slipping along through it. Um, but yeah, it, it, the, the, the getting into the jungle and feeling that heat is an experience in itself. I can picture you now running through the jungle minding your own business. Yeah, and the machete. I'll send you a photograph of the guy with the machete. And just what you mentioned there about uh, with the humidity, that's something you can't train for. You just have to deal with it, accept it. But when you've put yourself into situations through other races where you have to do this kind of problem-solving with dealing with the altitude, dealing with heat, dealing with cold you start to build resilience. And if you have built resilience, you know that this is just something else that you have to deal with and overcome. And if you're in the right mindset, you just look at it as another challenge. And exactly. I think we're going to these races. We're not looking for an easy time. We're, we're going to, we're, we're looking for a challenge because we need a challenge in order to bring on some kind of a change. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I, when I did the ice ultra, <clears throat> the first night we slept out in like a, I don't know, it was a wigwam type thing, a tent. A lavu. And there you go. And it was minus 25 degrees. And my water bottle froze. And uh, I didn't drink enough water. Two water bottles took me both 750 mil. And I hadn't drank enough water. Started day one heavy pack on the road for 10K. And I burst off full of adrenaline and all the rest of it and was flying along and then we hit the hit the hills after checkpoint one snowshoes on I started hiking along and then I started getting these cramps in my calves at 15k and I continued until the 35k mark and I mean I, I couldn't walk for more than 10 steps I absolutely blew up on it and then you know it passed um, and I remember just saying to myself then I went okay I've gotten through that. If I got through that, I can get through a lot of other things. Uh, and I said, you know what? And I, when you're in an environment like this, that's so different to what you're used to. That's so you know you're pushing hard. You're you're, you're exerting yourself at that level. Things are going to go wrong. Just accept things are going to go wrong, and trust in your past experiences of life that you've got something in your toolbox that's going to get you through this. And that's a very, uh, you know, that's a very reassuring way to think. Uh, or naive, perhaps, way to think about things. But in the jungle, that was my approach. I was like, stuff's going to go wrong. Things are going to break. Uh, you know, something's going to fall out of my bag, maybe, or 
you know, I'm going to twist my ankle maybe, or I'm going to, and if it happens, it happens, and I'll deal with it when it does. Now, I'm not going to put myself in a position that increases the risk of these things happening. I'm going to have as many things controlled as I can. But when you push the boundaries of your your uh, uh, capacity, things go wrong. That's just the way it is. Exactly. And, you, and you kind of need things to go wrong in order to give you an opportunity to learn something. I bet you anything exactly. that you never practiced how to change the wheel of a car. The first time you did it was when you got a puncture. And I would say you're probably right, yes. Yeah, and, and but that's what we all do. But you wait until, yeah. and, and then you know what to do because it a situation has happened, problems, you don't get out of the car and then puncture the other three wheels. You get out and you sort, sort the problem and you get going. So that's how you learn how to, how to change the wheel of a car. It's after you get a mm. puncture. Now, I know it's way past your bedtime and <laughs> I'm conscious of your of your time. I always say that. That's actually my way of signing off on podcasts. But you did mention that you have done a podcast with Spencer and you've been talking a bit more about the race. So what's the name of his his podcast? Uh, so Spencer's podcast is Big Fish, the Big Fish podcast. That's, I think, getting released on Friday, um, the 20, whatever it is, of June. And then just another thing that if people want to sign up to, I need to be on the Ultimate Races. Um, there, I have a code, it's Belton 300, and you'll get £300 sterling off the entry. I have no affiliation to the guys. Um, I don't get any kickback for people signing up to races. Um, they offer that to me as a kind of a media thing um, when I signed up and if they said if I promoted it um, sorry not they said if I promoted it I told them I wanted to promote it they gave me a very uh, very kind and made up a video of my experience um, and in turn I have that code for anyone who wants to join as I said I have no dog in the fight I'm not pushing or getting anything out of it but I would uh, anyone that um, wants to experience that level of, of living um, and they want to try one of the Beyond the Ultimate races, there's a code there that will help lighten the, the, the financial load of it. And I'll put that into the show notes and if you send me on your kit list, I'll put that into it as well. If anyone wants to listen to the podcast we did about the uh, Ice Ultra, they can go back a few episodes and if you enjoyed this or any of the other ones, I don't get many reviews or too many shares so I'm not sure how many people are actually listening but if you listen to the podcast and you find you got something from it maybe give it a review on Spotify or iTunes wherever you listen pass it on to somebody there's no money being made out of it uh, my own time guests giving their own time and we try to have it some way educational towards the listener that it will actually help them in their own racing or whatever event so Until next time, thanks John and all the best.